You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 105 with Lindsay McDougal. He's on Twitter at Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, McDougal, M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L. Follow him on Twitter. I'll tell you more about Lindsay in a moment. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, hi, welcome. Um, if you're brand new, I'll get the obvious questions out of the way. Uh, no, I'm not that X Factor guy. Yes, I did change my name. No, I don't sleep with anyone who's a cast member of any of the shows I've ever been on. That would be unprofessional. Yes, I still see James. Okay, cool. Right, hi, here we are. We're in Amsterdam. You are in Amsterdam with me. I'm sitting in an Airbnb. Um, my bicycle is strapped to a, um, uh, a wind trainer, which is a way of riding a bicycle indoors. Um, so it's in here because I've been working a lot and haven't had time to get out on the road. Um, I'm here with Think, uh, the school I work at. Think, T-H-N-K dot O-R-G is the website. Um, I work at the school. I'm a curator and moderator for some of the forums, for some of the forum program for uh, a part of the year. We've had some, uh, we've got a festival on at the moment. We've had some exceptional sessions today. Uh, we had a session this morning with uh, the photographer, Doug Menway, who, uh, documented Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, and the rise of Silicon Valley between the mid-'80s and the 2000.com crash. Very interesting, cat. Eiji Hanshimitsu, who's a Japanese happiness expert. That was very, very interesting. We did a very deep meditation with him today. And Alexa Clay, who you know from this show. Alexa Clay came on uh, this afternoon, and we had a chat not only about the misfit economy, but then we had an exercise where we all ran around the room and created our own cult. It was fascinating. Uh, who have we got tomorrow? We've got JC Coglin, who's the CEO of the Movember Foundation, and 
And Mike Cotty, the mountain climbing super vegan cyclist, Mike Cotty is coming on the show tomorrow. Very, very excited about it. Very excited about it. It's it's great. I love working here. I love working at the school. It's a lovely job to have to, um, you know, kind of balance out some of the other stuff I do. I'm in a room full of people who are trying to change the world and I get to be inspired by them and, and, and talk to them and, and rub shoulders with them and it's 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 glorious. We did have a very intense session in the evening though. I didn't lead the session, one of my colleagues did, but I don't know if in Australia uh, or in America even where a lot of people, most people listen to this show, that people are actually even quite aware of the absolute scale of the refugee situation in Europe at the moment. It 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 really kind of is like the 30s all over again. Um, we had a visit from a, a photojournalist who's been documenting what's happening in Calais and in East Europe over the last few months, and it's very, very, very confronting stuff. And it's an enormous problem that won't go away simply just by thinking it will go away or putting a fence around it, which we saw a lot of photos today. But as I sit here, I, I'm still rattled by a lot of the photographs I saw today. And um, I'm just grateful. That's all I can be. I'm grateful for this safe, warm room that I sit in with a fridge that has three bagels, two avocados, a long way from the tropics, um, some peanut butter, some bananas, coffee. I've got a flushing toilet. I've got running water. I've got a bed. I've got a telephone that I can text my family and they can write back to me even on the other side of the world from them. I have a lot to be grateful for today. There are many, many people, many people in Europe today, that, in Australia even, that don't have what I've got today. So I'm, I'm very grateful. And it did actually kind of break my heart. We were um, brainstorming uh, some issue, interesting things about, uh, about the refugee crisis tonight. And um, it broke my heart to say, just don't, just don't do what Australia does. Just don't put people in prison no matter what. Because bad things happen and it rots the heart of all of us. <laughs> and it was a bit sad to say that. Um, but that's how I feel. Uh, it might not be how you feel, I understand that, but um, that's okay. We can have different opinions. That's fine. I'll try and get some of the stuff that uh, we recorded today up online as soon as you can so you can hear uh, what we're doing here as well. I've got some great, inspiring conversations happening. Um, and this city is equally inspiring and, and great. I love this. I love the city. If you can, at one point in your life, just get to Amsterdam. Just just get here. Not for all the reasons that you hear. That's in a tiny, tiny, little, little bit. It's like saying Sydney is King's Cross. It's, it's one street that's 100 metres long where that sort of stuff happens. And that's the same here. It really is. Um, but, yeah, I really love it here. Hey, look, we still have a sponsor. Isn't that exciting? My friends, this episode is brought to you by The Iconic, Australia's leading online clothing store. You already use The Iconic. I know you do. So do I. Perhaps you find yourself in the situation that I was in the other week where it's about time I need to get something new to sleep in. Summer's on the way. The nights are getting warmer. Occasionally in the middle of the night, I'll kick off my pajama bottoms because I'm getting a bit hot. Put a leg out from under the doona. You know, the old temperature control, you do it too. That was fine in the old days. It's no problem. But now that I live with my girlfriend and her kid, it look, it's 
simply unacceptable to have the kid come into the room in the middle of the night after a bad dream or a sore tummy or something like that and have her walk in the room and be blinded by the sight of her mum's boyfriend's nether regions glowing in the night with my wicked cycling shorts tan. No, that makes for a very awkward breakfast. You can trust me on that. So perhaps you'll need to get some new sleep shorts. There's loads of styles available there. You'll sleep cool. You can sleep well, knowing that you maintain at least a level of diplomatic relations with the child in the household. The iconic stock over 700 top brands, over 50,000 products. They offer an incredible three-hour deliver in Sydney, uh, same-day shipping in Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, and Sydney, overnight to New Zealand, and free returns for 100 days. You shop there anyway. If you want to support this show, go to theiconic.com.au slash off. <laughs> I can't even say my own offer code. Just go to theiconic.com.au slash osher, enter the offer code you see there halfway down the page on the left at checkout and get 10% off full price styles with any purchase over 99 bucks. You can shop from your phone, your laptop, Wherever you are listening to this right now, you can shop while you listen to my voice. You can support the people that support this show, the latest spring styles at your fingertips, theiconic.com.au slash osher. Enter the offer code you see on the screen at checkout for 10% off full price styles with any purchase over 99 bucks. And we thank you for supporting our show, The Iconic. You're awesome. Um, so this week I've had a small, tiny breakthrough in my headspace. I've uh, figured out a little bit of a way to interrupt. Interrupt, I think, is the only word I could use. The space between uh, the trigger and when I feel the anxiety or, or, or the, the living horror is what I would call it. It's not exactly anxiety. <laughs> so the, the, the space in between the, the trigger and, and when that hits, I've managed to figure out a little physical thing to do to, to, to interrupt that. It doesn't work every time, but I do get the feeling I get the feeling that it, it just kind of chipping away a little bit at that. I feel I'm feeling a little less troubled by the 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 the, the business in my brain. It's it's interesting um, how how it's working. I'm pretty much ready to try anything. Uh, but look, bear in mind, my brain is the mechanics of my brain are fairly well lubricated with three separate kinds of medications. So. Adding an extra physical step in the mix is just building on top of everything else. Nothing, nothing works in isolation, but I'm taking it one day at a time, as always. You know me by now. Uh, but I'll let you know how it goes. I'll let you know how it goes. So let me tell you about my guest. I'm excited to have this guy on the show. Lindsay McDougall is one of Australia's icons of, I guess you could call it, alternative culture. For nearly 20 years, he's been the guitar player for the iconic Australian punk band Frenzel Rom. For 10 years, he was a radio announcer on the National Youth Radio Network, Triple J. Lindsay is never backward in coming forward about his thoughts on fairness. And in this conversation, we discuss all kinds of things, all kinds of expectations of fairness in race relations, gender issues, climate issues. And we talk about what it was like but what it is like being a staunch lefty vegan whose dad was a member of the right-wing Australian Liberal Party. We met at Lindsay's home in Newtown in Sydney. He does a great job of describing the area. And we were surrounded in his living room by more guitars, books, and memorabilia than I could possibly comprehend. Um, I'm stoked that this conversation happened. I believe we tried to set it up 
It was one of those conversations backstage at a festival. Hey, man, why don't you come on the show? Yeah, that'd be great. I'll see you next time. Bye. And we figured the whole thing out on Twitter. I love technology. So come with me now to King Street. King Street's a long street, so you're not going to find his house, but he lives above King Street. He even says it. Um, and you can hear King Street bustling below us as we have this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy an afternoon with Lindsay McDougall. All right. Wallet, keys, phone, cup of tea. <laughs> Here we are. Yep, this um, is good. It, where are we, Lindsay? We're in Newtown. Glorious Newtown in the inner west. Now, this is... I'll have to map it for you. Yeah, because so, a lot of people listen from all over Australia, but also all over the world. I just so. mean from 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 you. This isn't east. There is another part of Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> My girlfriend gives me so much shit because um, she grew up uh, in Picnic Point, which is a part of Sydney that I don't know where it is. And uh, she gives me so much shit when we go visit her school friend. She's like, okay, you're across the Anzac Bridge. Yeah. Are you all right? <laughs> I came from Brisbane, man. Yeah, that's true. That's like, true. Why would I want to go where I don't know people? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And you have wonderful bridges in Brisbane. The Story Bridge with Kangaroo Point. That's wonderful. Yeah, we've got we've got new bridges now. Yeah. The, there's a, a lot of new bridges now. There's the GW McLennan, which Go is, Between Bridge. Yes. Sorry, the Go Between Bridge, of course. Yeah. Named in honor of GW McLennan. And what's the new one? There's some new famous Karilpa Bridge. Karilpa. Yeah, it's entirely self. It's like have you seen that poly bridge, that kind of game, that online game where people build bridges out of polygons? Uh, it's excellent. super nerdy. It, heaps fun. it looks like that. Isn't that smart? Yeah. That, like the, the dude that invented Minecraft, all it is is teaching kids. Like there's no killing, they, they just mine. And there's a, there's a bridge game now where you just build bridges. And all your idea is like, how do you get across the bridge? That's it. That's it. A friend of mine came up with a video game once called Camp. And yeah. Literally all you did was go camping and you had to get in your car and remember to stop at the shop to buy provisions. <laughs> and it was the most, and, you know, and then walk for an hour through the bush to get to your campsite. <laughs> Um, anyway, did yeah, did so, you find some Bevins already there? Uh, well, maybe. Yeah, that's the, we didn't get to that. That's point. the worst part is when you get there and they go, "What are you going to fucking do, cunt? What? Like, I'm already here, mate. <laughs> this is our place. Yeah, we booked oh. it. No, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. That's the, that. Does, if you if you press like the Q key and the control and the delete, you get those Bevins at the end. <laughs> of the, I don't. Know, I don't think I've ever got made. <laughs> anyway, we're in Newtown, yeah. which is uh, it's I guess in a way the Portland, the Williamsburg, the yeah. the 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 um the Camden Town, maybe the West uh, End, the Fortitude Valley. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, the other bits that are nice. Yeah, it's yeah, the Brunswick Street. It, it is. It, it's it's holding fast in the face of incredible gentrification. My gosh. Uh, but it is. Yeah. Mm. This is where it's all at. We'll see what in, happens if the West Connex comes through and suddenly there's a million more cars being pumped from the bottom of King Street North. Because uh, that's where the West Connex comes out. The first stage of it. Where it's they, a tunnel. It's a yeah. It's like a giant development uh, designed to help the western suburbs get to the airport, which is perfectly admirable. Except they've decided to just sort of put it here in Newtown and not make it go any further. And Newtown's got quite a lot of cars already on it. I avoid this area generally mm. if I'm in a car. Mm. I'll, I'll Uber and ride here. Yeah, yeah. But I tend not to want to drive here because there's already enough cars here. There is heaps. There's definitely enough cars here. Yeah. I try to not add to the cars. Love riding up Newtown, though, up King Street. It's so much fun. It's good. What Now, is this where, near where you grew up? Uh, no, no. And uh, I we will carry on the conversation from uh, James Matheson calling uh, the Northern Beaches the Insula Peninsula. Yeah. Because I'm from the Shire, Jim. 
which is the Insula Peninsula. Thank you very much. We are God's country. That's south of uh, south, south of Sydney. Sydney. South. We are God's country, and uh, we. Uh, although I wasn't from the beachy bit, I'm from Engadine, which is so you, you drive towards Wollongong and you get to the Shire, you get to Sutherland, uh, and then instead of going you know left to to the Cronulla and to Miranda and to the beaches and all that stuff you go right and you go inland to Engadine, which is sort of just before the south coast starts. It's the real bogan bit. There's is no it beaches. up against the national park? It is up against, not the national park. It's just like just some bush. All it's right. near the Heathcote National Park and it's near the Royal National Park, but it's just up against. Is it near park. Lucas Heights? Uh, you can see Lucas Heights directly across the valley from where I live. Which is Australia's own nuclear reactor. It is. It is. And we could see it. And when I grew up and whenever I... Dad has sold the house about three years ago, but we used to go on the balcony and you could see straight across Warrenora River and you could see shining brightly the Lucas Heights reactor. And it was wonderful. And you could see houses being built there, though those houses aren't in Lucas Heights. They're in Barton Ridge, <laughs> which is what the real estate calls Lucas Heights when they want to sell houses next to a nuclear reactor. It's named after our first prime minister. It is, it's a ridge. ridge. Yes. <laughs> it's a ridge. It is a ridge. It's also right next to a nuclear reactor, but <sighs> nothing bad's ever happened there. And that's that's one of those... Like, I think they've developed a lot of really good uh, medical advancements at that. that CSIRO, which is our Australian science, government science body, has come up with some world changing Mm -hmm. stuff for such a tiny country that we are comparatively to the rest of the world. And I really like the way that they were celebrated last year um, by having their funding cut so drastically. Yeah. All of those, lots of uh, people that I know that work in uh, for CSIRO have, have their friends have lost jobs and things, which is. You know. Well, you know, science. Yeah. Science brings things called facts mm. up against uh, things called uh, beliefs. Yes. And pff, no place for it. No, there's no place for it. We'll get to that. So, little Lindsay living in Engadine, New mm-hmm. South Wales, what did you folks do? Um, my dad was, when he met my mother, he owned a toy shop. Yeah. Um, this was uh, after he'd, he was he was originally from Townsville, and then he lived in Brisbane with his first wife, and then moved to Eng- uh, moved to Sydney. Met my mother. They both owned toy shops, and my dad's the kind of dude that uh, decides to he, he he likes to make life easier for people. So he incorporated all the toy shops that were called Toy World in New South Wales. He started the Toy World New South Wales, which was like you know a, a way of buying cheap toys from overseas and stuff. So he started the Toy World New South Wales. So I grew up with my dad owning a toy shop and then owning Toy World New South Wales and being the manager of Toy World. All the Toy World. He owned all the toy shops. Well, he managed them, yes. So I got all the prototypes of the toys. When he came back from trade fairs going, what do you reckon of this? Kind, yeah, but he'd always bring back the wrong things. Like we never had, I didn't have Star Wars. I had Action Man, I think. Was the oh, one. yeah. And yeah, just sort of had the other kind of ones. I had, had Rubik's Puzzle first, I think. Was I Action Man Australian, an Australian port of G.I. Joe? Perhaps he I was. I think he was G, just G.I. Joe molding. Yeah. But they're like, we don't know what G.I. is What's over GI? here. Let's call him Action Man. Yeah. That'll do it. That's what it says on the box. Action Man could have meant anything, though. He did have eagle eyes that could see everything and a kung fu grip. Did he really? He did. You remember that better than I do. I just remember that he had um, hair that could be shaved with a fam- with a household razor. Yeah. I seem to recall. And he had a parachute. I didn't have the parachute. I think Action Man had a parachute. He had one that talked. He could pull the talk. Did it say out of the way, commie? Or something know, like I imagine that? so. I imagine so. If you see something, say something. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so that's how I grew up. So nice. we're being surrounded by the toys and we're here in this. We really should kind of describe this room a bit. <laughs> this is like the clubhouse of clubhouses. I'll just kind of have a look around. There's, mm. there's more guitars than I can count, probably guitars. 10 yeah, guitars yeah. in here. 
there's a, a Nigel Tufnell from Spinal. There's an entire Spinal yes, Tap shrine. Others. There's three Spinal Taps. There's a shrine. There's David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell. Nigel Tufnell and Derek Small's yeah. action figures. On top of the record player, which doesn't use it much. Uh, there's a, a bunch of beautiful uh, guitars, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of bits and pieces, VHS of Spinal Tap. <laughs> there's other videos. Besides yeah, there's a lot of VHS yeah, work in here. There is, there is, because I've lived here for 17 years. So yeah, you know, pre DVD, even, and and lots and lots and lots and lots of books. Lots of books. Lots of yeah. books. Um, and this table. I mean, I'll just ask this: Am I going to have to swab down my <laughs> gear so I don't get the little sniffy sniff I... buzz button at the airport? Uh, no, no, no. This well, it's hard to say. Look, this table. <laughs> this table's been here for. For, for not that long. I, I tell you, I wiped the table down before you got here. Okay, great. So you'll be fine. It's not going to be like when, was it Hilltop Hoods? DJ Debris maybe came back to Australia and got his, his records got busted by the Sniffer Dogs because he was buying secondhand records from really old, awesome, you know, jazz and hip-hop stores. Yeah. And those records, when they used to, you know, DJ with him in the 70s, was where they would do the drugs on the records. So there's cocaine in the grooves of the record. 70s cocaine. I think it was 70s cocaine. I don't have no, I don't know how to compare 70s cocaine. How did he get out of that? I think probably by telling the story I just told. So I'm furthering the alibi, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, that's what mates do, yeah. isn't it? That's what, so. so growing up in Engadine, what kind of what kind of kid were you? Were you either like, I'm playing with a lot of toys, leave me alone, or are you I'm going outside to throw things and catch things? I was. I didn't throw and catch that much. I played lots of sports, but I wasn't particularly good at any of them. Like soccer and hockey and cricket and baseball. We won a baseball grand final against Lily Pilly, I think it was, which is good. The, in a cricket-obsessed country, how do you get baseball over some kids? All they um, want to be I think is that's probably how we won. All was, they want to be is Merv Hughes. All yeah. they want to be is Dennis Lilly. And the cricket teams that I played with were awesome. They're such great cricketers when I was growing up. But no, I, I had two younger brothers. I have two younger brothers, twins, who they obviously played together. And so I did play by myself a fair bit and created little worlds and things, which is fine and nice. And I had a you know pretty good time doing all that. And and when did music come into your brain and go, that's it, no room for anything else? I I learned my mum forced me to play piano when I was like 10 or 11 or 12 or something, 11 or 12. And I always learned, and then the music teacher would stop twice. The music teacher would like quit or went overseas or something, just as I got up to difficult stuff. But I learned the basics, which was enough. And then when I was at school, I remember I wanted to be a keyboard player in a band. But this is around the time of In Excess. And, you know, so you had great keyboard sounds and I guess pseudo echo and things. And then I, uh, then, we learned guitar for a term, and at the end of that term, Mrs. Kelly, the music teacher, was giving everyone different, um, you know, instruments. And she saw me and just didn't even ask me. She said, "Oh, you'll go back to keyboard, obviously, because I'd had previously." And purely because she said that, I went, "No, no, I want to keep learning guitar. Thanks." And and I did. And I kept learning guitar, and 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 that's and that's when I actually went. Well, now I've got to actually learn how to play guitar, and that was in 1987, I guess, maybe 86. So soon after that. You had your Guns N' Roses and all that, and, and there was Metallica's Black Album and all that sort of thing. So there was a lot to learn at the end of the 80s. And then... Now, how were you the kind of guy with the record needle going back over the roof, going back over the roof? Yeah. I, I was... Because I learned piano first. Sorry, that, that was actually early 90s, not the late 80s. That was just in my mind. I'm only, I was born in 78, so it couldn't have been 87. Anyway, uh, I was... Because I was... I learned piano first, and I was quite good at maths very analytical about stuff. So in my head, I can see where the notes should fall. And so I would learn songs by hearing, okay, that's what that is. That's what that is. I will learn how to play it. And I was quite good at reading 
um, the Wolf Marshall tabs. You remember the yeah, yeah. go buy Wolf Marshall tabs from the music shop? They were like about 25 bucks for an album. You could buy all of Alice in Chains' Dirt, all of uh, Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. Jenna, five for, of the best of Baby for folks who don't know what tab is, it's, it's like a, a different way of notating guitar mm. music because previously if you were reading guitar music and it was written in a clef, which we're familiar with through high school mm. or primary school music, um, you'd have to do a double translation from that to where your fingers were on the guitar. Work it where your fingers would fit yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But this was definitely a way of, no, someone's listened to this with perfect pitch and they've gone, ah, that's not the E that's on that string, that's the E that's on that string. Yeah. And this, well, this is, is the way, this is the best way to play this song. And sometimes the bands would help out or whatever. Although someone did tell me once because of various copyright rules, there was always various mistakes in the, in the tab just because they couldn't get it exactly right. I think that now I'm saying that out loud, that sounds really sick. It sounds like a fake book, sounds, like the yeah. jazz fake book, how they deliberately got a bar or two wrong. Yeah, right. So, no, 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 it's not, it's not watermelon, man. I don't know what you're talking about. That sound, yeah, that sounds more like it. I remember, <laughs> yeah. I do remember my music, uh, my English teacher, Miss McClintock, uh, I asked her to teach me Sweet Child of Mine and she did, but I knew she was telling, teaching me it wrong because I knew that it didn't sound the way she was playing it. And that was like the last lesson that I ever got. And from then on, I was like, no, I can work this stuff out for myself. And yeah. It's, it's like, almost like a superpower when you figure it out, isn't it? When, when you go, oh, that's how it goes. And, and you work out how you can do it all with your fingers in the right position or whatever. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, yeah. It always made me feel when I was, I was learning bass lines, mm. like because I wasn't a good guitar player. Um, it always made me feel just a little bit closer to the musician that I was idolizing. Like, mm. all right, his hand was like this. This is how yeah. his hand, oh, I get it. I don't understand. I did learn guitar for a while and I was right into guitar, but I switched to bass at 14 because all my other mates were way better guitar you players. You frets. You preferred, you preferred double, it was double bass you were playing, wasn't it? I was, it was, yeah. Uh, but I also, the thing that changed me was, uh, I don't care how lame it sounds, um, there's a riff at the end of the film version of Jesus Christ Superstar's mm -hmm. Superstar mm -hmm. where the bass just does this incredible run and I was like, oh, that's it. I want that instrument. Whatever that makes me want to dance, <laughs> that one. Somebody yeah, it was, it was that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I need to learn how to do that. The bass does the things to your, like, you know, guitar makes you go, woo, but bass makes you go, Whoa, it does. It's in there. It does. You know, it's, there's, and there's, 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 a, there's a thing, you know, I remember uh, Ozzy Osbourne's guitar player, Zach Wilde, talks mm -hmm. about the moment that he went, um, the intro of the Back in Black bend, mm -hmm. the first time he got it right, and I was yeah. like, oh, oh, I, I can do it. <laughs> and the one time out of eight that I get it right, I get the same feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And that's, I mean, that's the beauty of stuff like ACDC. It is once you, you it's easy to learn because it's, pretty basic like it's difficult but it's basic like it's hard to play but it's easy to learn best left hand in the business well they were malcolm's poor old malcolm hand, yeah. now god damn it and that was do they think that was cigarette smoking that caused the the problems in his brain which means yeah. now that he can't quite learn he can't he, he can play from muscle memory but he doesn't know what he's doing with his brain wow but his neural pathways are that deeply ingrained well come on he's been playing the same song over and over since the 70s he has actually oh man that's yeah that makes me that makes you've made a sad. you've made a living not only playing guitar now but you've also made a living uh talking mm. uh from a very steadfast standpoint how early did that start how early did you start well did you start getting in trouble for that at a young age uh yeah i was i at school I, there's there's a couple of good uh situations i didn't um I didn't like cutting my hair at school and I liked to let my horrible, you know, baby beard grow a little bit. And I remember once we had a, a, a 
mufty day, like a you know casual clothes day. Were you dressed up as the leader of a mosque? Uh, no, this was this was before <laughs> that would even be a great political statement. This, I, I think, I, growing up in that's Anger what a muf- that's what a mufty. Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's muf- that is mufty day, of course. That's mufty day, grand mufty day <laughs> yes. at Saint John Bosco. No, growing up in the Shire, they, I don't think there was much knowledge of Islam, believe it or not, in, yeah. that, in the 90s. Uh, but, you yeah, know, and so I, I decided, my, myself and two friends, we made the, I made this T-shirt that had a picture of Jesus Christ on it because it was a Catholic school, and it said, Jesus Christ had long hair, why can't I, or why can't we? And I turned up to school with that shirt on for casual clothes for Mufti Day, and my friends didn't. <laughs> it was just oh. me. <laughs> and I don't think Mr. Grady liked it very much. But gosh darn it, it was a, it was casual clothes day, and I will wear that shirt until I'm, you know, asked to take it off, and then I'll swap shirts. How me. how long in the day? Did I think it, it was probably by the by the time he saw me in, in re- at recess. I first made, recess, so you made it through two periods. That's not bad though. It's not bad for my first political statement. How old were you? <laughs> uh, fifteen. Did it feel like fuck you? <laughs> yeah, I think I think it probably did. I think, yeah, because. At the time, I, I at the time, what I think was more important than the, than the fuck you was, I found a loophole. This is a Catholic school, and Jesus Christ, I've seen Jesus of Nazareth t- TV show. He had long hair. Yeah, so, and he was white, living in the Middle East. Exactly, makes blue eyes. Once again, the Shire. I yeah, no makes idea. no sense at all. <laughs> it does not. No, I remember the first time I we went to Israel. I was like, yeah, I know white people that were from here. How come Jesus is always blonde haired, blue eyed? Wait a second. Let's see who's telling these stories. Let's yeah. trace it back a little. <laughs> yeah. Who's telling us these stories? That's things? the wacky part when you go there. And I know you've been there. It's yeah. like when you when you start going, oh, hang on, Helena Constantine was 335 years after. <laughs> what? Well, hang on. There was a council of, they decided, who, wait a second. Who's writing this stuff? Who, yeah. What reasons would they have to be telling us this stuff? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Were your parents at all political? Where did the, that urge to... Stick, stick it back or stand up for yourself come from? My dad, uh, until maybe about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, uh, used to hand out how to vote cards for the Liberal Party. And he's, he has uh, he's taken back his membership of the Liberal Party since uh, in the last 10, 15 years, which is wonderful. I don't know how he votes now, um, but he, yeah, back in them days, yeah, he was an absolute believer in that. And he never used to put it on us. But no, I, I don't know where the political interest comes from except that I like fairness quite a lot. And I think that maybe that comes from growing up and being at school and being quite interested in um, being treated fairly. Like, cause I, you know, people like me, people at school that are a bit different don't get treated fairly, but I, I knew how I should be treated. And I knew, I knew hypocrisy and, um, and uh, what do you call it? Just, when things don't make sense. For example, I was going out with this woman named, this girl, because we were at school, named Belinda. And she had this mate named Anthony who used to beat me up and call me various homophobic terms um, because I think he had a crush on Belinda and he used to, you know, he used to call me the F word, call me this stuff. And I'd be like, dude, you're punching me and calling me various homophobic terms, but I'm going out with the, with the girl. That, like, this doesn't make sense. If you want to beat me up, find a better reason. Find a reason that makes sense, you know. Just don't, just don't, just revert back to your base instinct of this guy must be gay because, I guess I probably because I used to have Cure records in my in my bag or whatever, you know. 
I'm going out with a girl who you like. That doesn't make sense that I can't, you know, mm. find a good reason. And that's maybe one of the things that I used to think. Like there, there are reasons that there are reasons things happen and there are bad reasons why things happen as well. So maybe that makes sense vaguely. And where did the concept of fair and what's fair come from? Oh, my dad, my parents are awesome. They're just, yeah, they, they were like when they split up and they split up because they were just weren't matched together for each other at all. And mum, like, and lots of parents in the Shire were splitting up at the time. And I remember my mate Brett, his dad bought him a drum kit because he wants so he could hang out with him and all that. And my mum was like, no, no, I'm leaving your dad. I, I will see you, but I'm not going to buy your love. I'm not going to, and then, like, this isn't how the world works, you know. You so know. you stayed with your father? Yes. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was a three, three kids and my dad. It's a four boy household. So no wonder my mum left. My mum's like, I'm out of this place. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think I think my parents have always been really, still, even though I disagree with my dad politically for a lot of my grown up life, still fairness is very important. That's probably one of the reasons that he left the Liberal Party as they slid further down the chain into horrible human rights abuses, which the Labor Party sort of helped, you know, came down the chain after them going, us two guys. You know. Yeah, it is that... <clears throat> When you look at who started mandatory detention, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 who, and who started the offshore processing, mm-hmm. and who just re-signed the, uh, the the Northern Territory intervention, just rubber stamped it. That was Julia Gillard with Pete, in, with Peter Garrett in the government as well. Oh, uh, liberal means a different thing in Australia too. Very, very, yes. very, very different thing in Australia. <laughs> Liberals, the right-wing conservative government. I actually know someone who uh, is a card-carrying member of the Liberal Party, mm-hmm. purely so they can take part in the voting process that votes Abbott out. That's that's a nice, that's a nice, I like that. That's that's Peter Garrett. Like when you think working from the inside, he had to join the Labor Party so he could get a say in the, in the, in the country. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think ideologically he wasn't that sort of a person. Yeah, absolutely. Good on him. That's like the people that moved to John Howard's electorate so they could vote John Howard out um, and <laughs> the ABC newsreader, whose name I forgot, got in instead. It was brilliant. Where, um, so you're, you're playing... And you're probably by this point playing with other guys and, mm-hmm. and jamming. So what were the uh, – my first band was – all we did was Kiss songs. I didn't know there was any other songs to play. It was basically side A and side D of Kiss Alive 1. That that's, was it. That's respectable. It was pretty good. Mm. Uh, Which makes you Gene Simmons. It, I was, yeah. Before <laughs> which, I realised – horrible. Who, yeah. Before I realised he was a horrible, horrible human being. Person. A horrible, horrible human being. Uh, what were you, what were the first kind of music you were jamming to? Uh, I was Metallica's Black Album and, and, uh, and Appetite for Destruction, what we could play of it. Uh, and then that really easy to play music grunge came along <laughs> and it was brilliant. And, and every kid thought they could sing like Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley and Scott Whelan from Sonable Pilots. And I was no different. I had a horrible voice on me at that time. And you know how like, you know, Eddie Vedder sang like he'd had a really hard life, whether or not it was true, whatever. When you're 14 and 15, you have not had a hard life at all, yet you'll try and sing like that. And I remember even singing it, 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 it in music class, singing acoustic um, Pearl Jam songs. Pearl Jam was the big one for me. And, oh, man, I can so embarrass when I think about that. It's hilarious. But, yeah, we used to jam on that stuff. Dave Vigilio on drums. Uh, I think Dave Harker played bass for, for a while. And there was Liam Connell on guitar. Lots of people. And Daniel Clark, who was a guy that came in and sang for a bit when we realized that I couldn't sing. It was I just it's hard to describe now that grunge was such a massive thing, mm-hmm. but there was this thing called hair metal that was just just dominated. Mm-hmm. Everything was on the radio. It was everywhere. And Nevermind was released at the end of 1991. 
so was 10 and so was blood sugar sets magic by april the next year i remember reading interviews with guys uh from poison going why can't we just go back to how it used to be <laughs> and they tr- and they would try the next album from those bands like vince neil from motley crew had a goatee yeah well, that's it right was it was so bad and they all did it even bon jovi tried not that they needed to because they were you know far and away the most successful but so many of those bands would do their stuff and there was bands like Days of the New, who were like a, a hair metal band that twisted themselves into a grunge band. Alice in Chains were a glam band before they were they really um, you know, changed before heroin and the, and the popularity. So, so a Pantera, I remember going to. Yeah. There's a there was a record store. It's now not really like it used to be, or even I don't know if it's even still there. It was a record store called Utopia, mm. uh, heavy metal records, which is about as big as this room, and it was in Clarence Street in the city. City, and we were from Brisbane. When we would go on school band tours down here when we were yeah. in high school. Cool. We'd go to Utopia and we'd pick up the old Pantera records. Yeah. And they're, they're all on the covers with a big hair Absolutely. and full power metal. And that's because, and, and just like a million kids dressed up like their favorite grunge stars, Pantera would have seen, well, that's, that's, what, the, that's what the men who play music or the tough people that play music yeah. dress like. That's what we dress like. Man of War were tough as nails, man. <laughs> man of War's awesome. You got to look up Man of War if you, if you listen to this on a, on a computer device. It's, very yeah, I'd say fighting the world is where I would start. Yeah, Man of War's fighting the world. That's brilliant. That's I mean, um, uh, yeah, Steel Panther do all that stuff quite well. Although last time I saw them at Soundwave, I think they kind of forgot the joke because and have become the joke in that they they're not poking fun at themselves anymore. They seem to be more just living the life on stage at least. I know that they're like they were getting girls up on stage and you know getting them to get their boobs out and stuff, and I'm like. You're supposed to be making fun of this lifestyle, not just living it. The whole thing. Was- that's their whole thing. They would do on Monday nights at the Key Club in LA. That's mm-hmm. what they do every Monday night. Yeah. Just be like twenty girls with their boobs out on stage. Yeah, uh, but they used to make more fun of their own, you know, uh, uh, sexual misgivings and stuff on stage. You know, and yeah. their own insecurities. Yeah. You know. I, they, well, they haven't been the same since they stopped being called Rock School. Oh yeah, Rock. They were called Rock School. Yeah, metal school. Rock metal school. school. Sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Metal school. They were called metal school. I went and saw them at the either the Key Club or the Whiskey in LA. I've been overseas too, actually, Osha. <laughs> um, and, uh, and but I went and saw a band called um, Petty Cash first, which was a Tom Petty and John Johnny Cash cover band. Just they were like downstairs in, in the same sort of complex. So good, brilliant. Petty Cash. So at what point did? So this is all very. Quite technical music. Mm-hmm. It's a bit diddly diddly. Yeah, There's a bit pro- diddly. pointy guitar. Oh yeah, I could I, I could point it. I had a couple of guitars that had slight points on them, really cheap ones. But yeah, yeah. yeah and you had to learn how to play stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At what point did punk music mm-hmm. come along? Um, I will thank Mary Ellen Marupus. She worked at the video store. Um, in Engadine now, video stores. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> it's always the people that work in the video store. What is it? A lot of time on their hands. Uh, a relaxed person works in a video store. Someone who has the world at their fingertips, at least in those days, because they got the, the videos. Exposed to just tens of thousands of hours of culture. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And uh, she was the one that actually sold me two Frenzel ROM releases in 94 and I guess 94. So just would have been uh, Coughing Up a Storm and Dick Sandwich, the first two Frenzel Rom EP and album. And um, and also there was a couple of friends who were listening to No Effects and that sort of thing. So I listened to them as well. But I didn't really get into them that much. And then just started listening to Australian punk rock after that, the Meanies and the Hard-Ons. Ray Arn from the Hard-Ons used to work at Power Station in uh, Miranda, a, a, um, a music shop in Miranda. Now he works at Utopia. 
So, yeah. But so I get into that stuff and it was seriously, it was quite a steep learning curve. So between 94 and the end of 95 is when I started getting into punk rock and, um, and le- loving all that stuff and learning to play it because everything I would listen to, I would learn to play just because I've listened to it and I'm in my room and I want to be able to sing along with it. So I may as well learn to play it. So I'll plug my bad Fender Strat copy into my cheap amplifier and just play along till I got it right. And my dad would get very upset, especially when friends or rom songs like there's a lyric, I think you're really nice, but I don't want to fuck you. And I'm singing that in Jason's nasally Australian tone in my bedroom as a 15 year old or 16 year old by that stage. Um, in Engadine, while the whole of Maruba place was listening, which is where I used to live. So yeah, it was, it was quite humorous. And then I left school three months later, I got to audition for the band. How did, <laughs> how did that happen? It was, it was, um, when it, I, I'm guessing the kind of school you're going to was a lining you up for university kind of thing. Yep, absolutely. Although luckily for me, I kind of lost my direction at the end of year 12. Um, just because I was seeing other aspects of life that I was finding interesting and, you know, and, and, you know, not just silly stuff. I do remember, because I was never very good at smoking marijuana, but a lot of my friends were. So that was something that sort of happened. But I kind of was just interested in other things. I definitely wanted to be an accountant up until I was about 15, I think, or 16. And then music became much more interesting. And I had started at university in uh, just before I turned 18 in 1996. I was doing a um, an arts degree, which was maths, music, and political science, which would have led nowhere. <laughs> it's completely useless, although interesting. The political science stuff was great, I remember. And I used to love maths for some reason, although that seems ridiculous now because I don't know what it is anymore. But, um, yeah, and so three months into that, I was coming home from a shift at Coles I was working in the fruit and veg department. It's a soup, big supermarket chain yeah, in Australia. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I heard on the radio on North FM, which is broadcast in North Sydney, and somehow I was hearing it in Engadine that they needed a um, that, that Frenzel Rom needed. I knew they were the guitarist had left because I'd heard I'd been to a show where they announced it, and uh, and then because I used to go to Frenzel Rom gigs, and then they said that they needed a guitarist. They needed a guitarist, and so I just called the manager and somehow made a demo tape which would be hilarious to listen to now just playing along to friends or rom songs and stuff and then um went to an audition which was great i should say my girlfriend at the time liz for her birthday or maybe christmas at the end of 95 i got i went and seen saw, seen friends or rom at manning bar at sydney uni got a set list got it signed and got it framed and that was the present my girlfriend at the time <laughs> and then i joined the band <laughs> it's <was> pretty funny <laughs> thinking what a cool present frenzel rom set let's get this signed get this so framed. you're you're, fr- you're fresh out of you know yeah. catholic boys high school mm-hmm. you've you've put your finger into a political science uh mm-hmm. degree for about three months so clearly you know everything there is to know in the world oh yeah i'm ready to take on the world and then there <laughs> you are with these road hardy aussie mm-hmm shall we say, uh, me, m- m- conservatively budgeted <laughs> touring organisation. It was funny. We're actually in this room, which our manager used to live in this house, in this room that my dad came and Chris Moses, our manager, still our manager today, showed him our accounts. My dad's a chartered accountant by trade, apart from owning a toy shop and stuff. Um, and he, uh, he managed to convince my dad that Frenzel Ron was a viable commodity and, and to let me drop out of university. I don't know what magical you know, book fixing went on, but he believed him. And so that, I was allowed to leave. 
my dad didn't mind me leaving university to come and be in this band to go be in this band and so you already knew all the songs mm -hmm. yep i didn't have too many more to learn um that was pretty easy there were other things to learn <laughs> when you join a band you can't the songs aren't quite enough you have to learn how to you know operate with three other guys on a stage and how to uh not drink too much that you can still play when you're on stage it took a few years because I can only imagine you're barely 18 years old and mm -hmm. you're in this whirlwind scene at the time. Yeah. That must have been pretty intense. We, we just released Punch in the Face just before I joined the band and that was a really big thing for Friends All Wrong. It was a song that got played everywhere. It was like the main song that got played on Triple J first and everything. We, you were in the video. Did you write yeah. the song? No, I wasn't in the band. When it, I, was, I didn't even record it. Ben played on the, the album. Oh, but, you, but you were in the video? Yes. Wow. Miming along. Yeah, yeah so right. There were like two songs on that album. And I was, yeah, disappointment as well. I also mind in the video but um yeah because ben wanted to go back to university and he still still seems a lovely guy um one of the only guys in that band we still talk to funnily enough, by choice ex ex members ex members yes yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and so we um yeah and i joined then and it was crazy like we were just you know by the start of the the next year we were doing um big day out isn't that the one with some like a tent fell down or something oh it's hard to remember I vaguely recall there was a big day out, which is like a Lollapalooza that tours around in Australia. It's not around anymore. Mm. That at a Friends or Rom show, some like the, the tent fell down. The, the people were dancing so hard they oh. knocked the tent over. We've had so many. I remember gigs having to be stopped because people used to crowd surf and then reach up into the roof, like push the panels off a roof and pull the ele electrics down and stuff. Friends or Rom fans are very enthusiastic about those things. And back in them days, you know, when people were even wilder and, um, you know, insurance it was a whole different ball game when yeah. it came to liability insurance and stuff um yeah i can't remember the tent falling down there was lots of ridiculous things though like yeah we've been around for 20 years yeah but it sounds like <coughs> you know did you did you ever like walk off stage and go well i'm really glad i didn't die just then yeah no that's happened well playing in like you know in the rain with electrics all over the stage and stuff and it's been a few times well the thing is I've got away so easily. It's Jason, our lead singer, who is the guy that I think regularly says, man, I should have died back there. You know, he's had, you know, two different broken arms. He's had a, the, the, the larvae of a, uh, no, a pig worm, a, a tapeworm born from a pig in Bolivia living in his brain for three years, climbing up from his stomach into his brain. And then it lived there formed a husk around itself to keep itself safe and he only found out when he started having seizures when the the tapeworm died and started rotting inside his brain <laughs> I'm, I'm fine i'm just the guitarist on the side of stage that occasionally gets stuff chucked at me i'm fine <laughs> oh it's ridiculous it was it was a uh, because i remember the first time i met you was at the rehearsals for the 1999 aria awards oh, okay. so you'd been, to work out where you'd where... been in there the band three years obviously mm -hmm. by that point yep. And that I was remember, probably our biggest point around there, around the Arias then, I think. It was gigantic. It was at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, 12,000 seater, humongous. Mm. And I walked in during your sound checks. When you present these awards, they get you in the day before to walk through the rehearsal mm -hmm. and walk through presenting the award. I walked in on your rehearsal and the whole band in Slayer shirts and sleeve tattoos mm -hmm. was playing, you were playing a note perfect rendition of Mr. Brownstone. <laughs> That's great. I could probably still play Mr. Brownstone. I mean, I used to play it at school as well. Yes. Yeah, well, that's the thing, like, 
about bands like uh, about and most bands, I imagine, because the, you, the, the despite the music you play, you've definitely come from a world of learning lots of songs and knowing how to play. I mean, Christ, can you imagine Weezer just jamming on songs? People like Rivers from Weezer, who's one of the greatest guitarists in rock and roll. <coughs> but yeah, that that uh, Arias was very funny because we, Jason had a broken arm for that Arias, and he he did he'd done that in Calgary in in Alberta. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uh, when he was stage diving and fell into a hole on the stage and cracked his arm you know, like 180 degrees the wrong way sort of thing, like snapped it right back. So we had to capitalise on that by turning the whole Aria set into a, a scene from a hospital. So Jason was wheeled on in a wheelchair and I was dressed up as a nurse because I was a blonde guy with long hair. I was always dressed up as a nurse. And um, the and we had a few other friends in wheelchairs and stuff. And and we had, in that sound check, we had a, a, a much lesser version of what would eventually happen on stage. We had... Um, uh, hydraulic pumps pumping blood out of ja- a few tubes placed up Jason's um, gurney in, 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 his, uh, in his wrists and coming out of his, his face there was also a bit of blood. And so on the night we had much more blood pumping. Our manager and a few other people were backstage pumping this blood. So after the second chorus, suddenly blood starts pouring out of these tubes on his wrist and he's aiming the blood into the audience and he's firing these like gushes of blood, which I believe one gush of blood did get uh, Molly Meldrum, who is a, a beloved Australian music <laughs> legend, uh, music reviewing legend. But yeah, it was the very, like, I don't think the people at the Arias liked us that much. They covered the stage in plastic, obviously, first. But man, it was a good way to, um, you know, have our massive TV debut or that part of that sort of TV. It was very much, it was very fun. It was very, very fun. So you mentioned that you'd been touring, you, you went, the interesting thing about Australian punk is that it tends to travel way better than any other kind of Australian music. Powderfinger tried a billion mm-hmm. times overseas. Never, like, they play in the UK and mm-hmm. they played in Canada to Australians. Australian. Same with, yeah, Grinspoon as well, I think, did that. Living Ender, a different story, also a punk band of sorts, and also they had a massive hit single in America, um, so they did very well. We were we were lucky slash smart in that we used to, we wouldn't just go and tour, we would just hook ourselves up to other bands who were bigger. The first tour we did in America was with, uh, Less Than Jake, a ska band for half of it, and then Blink-182 jumped on that tour in 1997 just as they were getting big. So it was like, for us, brilliant. We are playing these ever bigger halls around America. And then we, we toured with um, with NoFX through America as well. And the same, through we've done shows in Europe with actually NoFX and Less Than Jake. I think we've been the only two bands we choose. Anyway, but yeah, it's, it, it's a much smarter idea. And now it happens a lot because... Um, 
you know, and it's one of those deals that you play with a band that does really well in a certain country or a certain region, then they come to Australia and play. And it's, it's sort of a nice little reciprocal deal. Right. And you get to see their country and their region. And, and, so what was it like when you first, I mean, was this the first time you've been overseas? Uh, first time I went overseas with, was with the band, was New Zealand first, then Japan and then America. Yeah. Yeah. It's for, a, I was 19. Um, key moments were uh, in Los Angeles, the Viper Room, where River Phoenix very sadly passed away and where so many uh, wonderful bands play. UMI and Spiderbait, two great Australian bands, were playing there. We'd been on tour since Florida. So all the way, made it from Florida all the way to LA. So we were, you know. Ridiculous. Toast. We were, yeah. And we, oh, UMI and Spiderbait are playing. This is great. A bit of Australia. We'll hear some Australian accents. We'll, we'll make fun of the Americans together. We all sort of came in there. And I was 19, so I had to stay outside. <laughs> the rest of the band being, you know, sympathetic and lovely people said, see you later, dude, and left me to walk the streets of LA as a 19-year-old in 1997 while they went and hung out with Spider-Bait and UMI. Um, and the same thing happened the next tour in New York. We all went to the Holiday Cocktail Lounge because the Bouncing Souls had sung about it in Manhattan. And I wasn't allowed in, so I had to walk the streets of New York. What was, what was your, you know, early exposure to the American political system like? I mean, it's a, it's a similar culture to Australia. Mm -hmm. And I've since moved back, or I'm actually in next week, I'm going over there to pack up my shit and come home because wow. I'm done. Man. Well. Yeah. The way I explain it is like, imagine all those guys that turn up in Bendigo the other day to protest mm -hmm. against a mosque, all right? Yes. Now imagine them with an arsenal of automatic weapons because yep. that's, that's America. That's a damn good point. And it's happening every freaking other day. It's horrendous. There's gun crime happening in America, big gun crime. And Donald Trump is a legitimate mm. contender and a very dangerous contender. Yeah. It's so frightening. So, but what was it like? I mean, Clinton was in power. Yeah, uh, um, Clinton was in power. Uh, it was, we knew, we had Pauline Hanson at about that time. So we didn't have much of a leg to stand on. I remember a guy in the South of America saying, and I'm, he used the N word, but I won't. You guys have, do you guys have Australian in Australia? Like that sort of thing. So we were like, you know, in the South of America, the rumors we had heard were like, oh, this is actually coming true. But, mm. you know, whatever you knew about the government, the human beings are the nice, human beings are the nicest, you know, people you meet at, at gigs are the nicest people in the world. And so when you're traveling as a 19 year old in a band, they're the relationship you look at. You don't look at the greater political stuff mm. because you are, you, you talk about that stuff with people, but you are just, you're meeting the nice people, you're forming these relationships. You're a 19 year old boy in a band, so you're doing your best to form as many relationships as possible, and you're just and you're just trying to do that. But at the same time, it was quite amazing. In when we were touring, it must have been '98 or '99, which is when Pauline Hanson really kind of inflamed Australia and the world. People would ask us about Pauline Hanson, and we're coming to America, where there's horrible problems with you know, race and racial racial violence and stuff and, and inequality. And they're asking us about Australia, so that's a bit embarrassing. So, and we were always primarily concerned with Australian politics because we're Australian people. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, it's, I, I do remember we were in Tallahassee at a keg party when Princess Diana died and the amount of Americans going, dude, your princess is dead. And we're like, when it's not really our, I mean, that's sad, but it's not really our princess. And they were like, Americans were glued to the screens for days for it. Like, they were big fans of Royal Family over there. Yeah. It was a memory. 
<laughs> so you, but it's interesting you mentioned that because I did want to ask you about that. You've seen uh, not only this country, but New Zealand, Asia, uh, North America, um, Europe, the Middle East. Have you been to South America? Uh, I've never played South America. I've played Africa. I've played South Africa. So, but so that's a lot of humanity you get to sample mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't get yes. a chance to sample. Now, bear in mind your sample is people who come to Friends or ROM shows. Are you going to ask me the worst race on earth? Because I cannot answer that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but does what you just said, does that apply? I, I mean, are, are we generally nice to each other when it comes to things like that? How are we? How, how, what has been your experience? I think when you, it's, it's all about communities on, on a small level. And that is like, it's so easy to say, oh, you know, F North Queensland or F Florida. That's bullshit. You can know? say fuck if you want. <laughs> I know, I know. Ten years of radio. Yeah, I'm yeah. Very well trained. Yeah, yeah. You're like, fuck Florida, just fucking, you know, Jeb Bush, fuck this. But you go there and you just meet the nicest people in the world. You know, sure, they are primarily religious, but that doesn't make people bad people. And that's a, it's a stupid thing to think that it does. Um, I think it seems, it seems now things are a little bit different. Community now being community then, no internet, no social media, no instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. You form bonds of community with people that you meet on a real uh, one-on-one basis. And I don't think it's any better or worse because of social media and instant gratification online now. But I do think people can feel more empowered to be dickheads now than they used to be able to. To be like empowered to be dickheads, I mean. Like obviously you can now feel that you're not alone, even if you know, if you are physically alone. Yeah, you can find a subreddit mm. with 2,000 other people who go, good for you, <laughs> yes, yeah. indeed. But but also you can, you know, dickheads can easily find more uh, more oxygen for their dickheadness to happen. And I think you see people at shows now that I think are more, but it may be in Australia, we've you know, spent the last 10, 15 years being told that you need to fight for yourself. It's all about your individual. I know the General Howard government was all about, you know, what you make of yourself. It's not about the community. It's, you know, you've mm. got to do, uh, you know, you've got to make something of yourself. So maybe you were seeing that as well. Um, it's seen, yeah, in, we haven't toured overseas that much. We went to Europe this year, but it seems now that people at shows seem a little bit more, a little bit more selfish, a little less community minded now. Different scenes are different. Obviously, there's those punk rock scenes, like the Poison City scene in Melbourne, which is uh, it's very much a um, uh, a culture of you know, like Smith Street Band. If people know Smith Street Band overseas, or uh, just it's, there's a lot of dudes hugging dudes that that kind of scene, which is really nice. It seems a little male dominated, but that's all right. That was the other thing about touring around that uh, punk rock was definitely not male dominated in the '90s. And I don't, I know the hardcore scene and the, the you know the prof, prof, the uh, you know the prominence of bands like Parkway Drive and Amity Affliction and all that have kind of made things a bit more male dominated in the punk rock scene these days. Back then, it certainly wasn't. It was great seeing so many people of all and, and in America, all races as well. Australia, it's very it seems very white the punk rock scene. Well, we we're a pretty white country. Mm. I, I had I I was friends with the only Asian person in St John Bosco High School, Jack Chu, Vietnamese man, great man. I was mates with him, so I win. The, I win. I win. Yeah. <laughs> it was, but yeah, that was—he was the only dude who was Asian at our school. But is, but I think by its nature, the punk rock scene is a bunch of people who, before the internet, were we don't know where anywhere else to go, and oh, I'm amongst my people when I'm at this show because it might be only fifty people in the club, and mm. across the town tonight, there's twelve thousand people at a Bon Jovi show, but <laughs> these fifty people get me. Yeah, and that's very much what the punk rock thing had, I think. Yeah, I, I, and it was—you knew that you were. 
like as bands get bigger, more people come to your show with different beliefs. But at a, a small, you know, your show, a smaller show, um, you, you're generally going to have overarchingly the same beliefs. If you believe in a fair go for everyone, everyone's the same, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was interesting touring with NoFX about 10, 12 years ago through America when they were quite big. They've got bigger now, but um, people, this is after they did the punk, just before or just after they did Punk Voter, uh, Rock Against Bush. So, yeah, it was just before, just after that. And they had people at their crowd who were Bush fans and they were just like, going, what the hell are you? Why are you fans of George W. Bush at our NoFX show? But as you get bigger, your music will get other people into your, you know, into, into your fan base. And how do you deal with that? You just have to make your mu- make your music a little bit clearer. I think we used to have the jokes. We've got a song called "Some of My Best Friends Are Racist," um, which is you know play on that. Some of my best friends are black. I'm, I'm not racist. Some of my best friends are black, and that's that argument is still trotted out today on every internet forum about Islam. I'm not, first of all, Islam's not a race, and secondly, I've got friends who are Muslim, so I can't hate Muslims. Now, don't have that mosque in in Bendigo. <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, but so it was a play on that. Some of my best friends are racist, and but we used to make jokes that people would come to our show and hear the song and go, "Fuck you!" Some of my best friends are racist. Shit, yeah, this is fucking rad, you know. Oh, no. And you can't. As Tism have a great song. Um, this is serious. I'm a great Australian band, uh, and the chorus is, "As a mistral employee once says said to me, you're only as good as your fans." And Mistral being a manufacturer of fans, but yeah, like so, you've got to you can't you can't decide who your fans are. You just have to communicate to them, you know. Yeah, and don't don't let them get away with stuff. I think sometimes, you know, you see bands and and subcultures that are into certain sorts of music missing the point. That guy may not be a misogynist, but a subgroup of his fan base are, and if that's not addressed, that can be bad, you know. And I think, you know, here I, I think. Everyone should be allowed to tour regardless of, sorry, I'm getting into Tyler, the creator territory here. But he's like, he's this rapper that sings stuff that's, it's amazing, some of his rap, but some people call him a misogynist for the stuff he raps about. And he's, you know, he's not touring Australia now because either his visa wasn't going to be, was going to be revoked or he just didn't want to come because of the ground swell against him. Um, I think he should be able to tour because if he can't tour Australia because of his lyrics, then neither can Nick Cave for having the murder ballads, neither can... Um, Neil Diamond for singing about killing Delilah in the song Delilah by Neil Diamond. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, like, but he also, I don't think, did enough as a Tyler creator to dissuade his online fan base from going after these um, these anti Tyler creator people with real bad misogynist based right. hate. Like he should he should say like he's not a, I don't think he's a misogynist, but he should tell his fans stop trolling my my the people who hate me on the internet because you're making me look bad. Yeah. Sorry, I went into that. Interview. No, 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 the it's fine. It's in. like as a cyclist when I see um, what I see last night in San Francisco, there was a critical mass, which is a cyclist uh, mm-hmm. activist ride that's been going for 30 years, I think. There's a bunch of fucking critical mass fuckwits riding the wrong way up a street, blocking a car's pathway, mm-hmm. and then smashing her window with a bike lock. It's like, you fucking idiot. Yeah. I, I, I ride a bike too, and now people are going to think I do that shit. And, and and I'm also a bike rider, and I love bike riding, and I do occasionally get angry at cars, but I get more angry at asshole bike riders. Oh, man. Because you try and do the right thing, and occasionally I will take off before the light turns green to keep out of the car's way. I'll move I'll move up there, you know, and so I have been guilty of that sort of thing. And, and, and you know cars are a lot bigger than bikes and can cause a lot more damage, but you just see some bike riders, and that happens in the city a lot, and they're just – just because they know they can, they're getting out in front of cars and zooping past them and stuff. And it's like, don't take it. First of all, don't tar me with that same brush, but don't take your life 
in their hands. I feel how you feel, people who don't like cyclists. I feel how mm. you feel about cyclists mm. as I feel about pea platers. Yeah. Pea platers who are fucking idiots. <laughs> yes. Just because some guy with a pea plate's a provisional license here in Australia, yeah. and it's, you know, you're 17, you're 18, you're behind the wheel of a V6, you get up doing some stupid shit. Mm-hmm. That's how when people see a pea plate, they go, "Up, oh, you're all idiots." Yep. I, I was driving back from from Saifari, this doof that I was at on the weekend. Um, this is a good four and a half hour drive. Every time you see a pea plate, you're like, "I'm going to get out of that lane. Forget about it. I'm not getting anywhere near them. They're going to do something stupid." Yeah, and you know, twenty percent of the time they do it, and that's the time you remember. You're like, "No, that's <laughs> no good." I've, have you ever had like? Because I've had horrible times riding around the city on bikes, and uh, but occasionally you do get your own. I have once after this car came past and screamed abuse at my girlfriend at the time who was behind me on a bike. I had ridden up to that bike at the stop sign, at the traffic up lights. Up to the car. They, at the car, because they forget, of course. Cars forget they have to stop at traffic lights. Yeah. So I've casually gone up, spat through the window and gone on. <laughs> because you're going to yell horrible things at, at anyone, really, especially the girl I was going out with who was behind me on a bike, and then be within riding distance of me, I'm going to do something to you. That's ridiculous. You can't, you, you, you can't just scream obscenities. And there was a, there was a taxi once who tried to run me off a road. Uh, and then as I was yelling at him, just wound the window up in my face with a passenger. So he's doing this with a passenger, paying passenger. So I sort of came out in front of him on George street, which is a two lane major street in Sydney and just rode really slowly all the way up. There was nowhere else he could go to slow with buses to the left. Slowly up George Street, knowing there was nothing he could do about it. <laughs> so anyway, I think I'll just become one of those cyclists that you hate. No, 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 no. It's a, look, hey, it's a small act, small acts of, uh, of rebellion. Rebellion, yeah. Just a, just a sort of. So we talked. We talked a little about the communal nature of punk music, mm. but I'm also, and I never really figured it out, and I would love you to help me out. What is the vegan punk rock <laughs> scenario? Because I. I don't know when I first heard about when I first went vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Yumi, who I worked with, going, oh, "You'll be vegan soon," and, I'm, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh no!" But then I'm going to have to get that tattoos on my hands. You do? Oh, no, no. Well, that's straight edge. That's the the, the well, edges, Yeah, but yeah, you can. Dude, essentially, get... I am. Yeah, yeah, you are these days. Yeah, I'm a straight edge. Oh, gosh, I'm going to go tell Toby Morse. You can, you can join the club. <laughs> Ian Mackay's going to give you a, send you the letter. <laughs> Welcome to the club. You've got straight edge. So what's the what's the vegetarian punk rock thing? Is it is it, a, is, is, it a, is it an, an act of rebellion? Is that what it is? No, I I think I like to think is that people in punk in punk rock like to look at things objectively in a certain way. So you know you, you see things about the government you don't like, and so yeah, you, you will act, be active against that. Um, when I joined Friends of Rom, I was from the Shire. I had no idea about vegetarianism. Apparently, I went out with Sam, a girl I went out with very briefly, was vegetarian. Apparently, I used to make her watch me eat cheeseburgers. <laughs> I don't remember that. What a horrible thing to do. Um, but I joined the band and Jason, the lead singer of Friends Rom, told me, he said, go vegetarian or you're out of the band. I was like, okay, anything for you, Jay. I love you. You signed my signed frame set yeah. And um, then I actually, I remember at the time just making up stories to my friends like, oh, you know, I'm going to go vegetarian. Uh, just, you know, it'll be it'll help me live healthier on the road. You know, it'll, it's a healthy way to do it. I won't get so tired because I just, didn't want to admit that I'd done it because Jason told me to go vegetarian. But then I started meeting because we would have people at shows from Animal Liberation and stuff. And so I'd chat to them and they're generally, you know, younger, younger people, cute girls often work for Animal Liberation. As an 18-year-old boy, that's quite, you know, that's, that's someone I will listen to. And uh, I then, uh, our, our old guitarist, Ben, was vegan. His brother, Liam, was vegan. Our manager, Chris, was vegan. Um, our label rep at 
um, at Shock Records, Diane Meyer, also vegan. So there's a lot of vegan people and they were like, awesome, you're going vegetarian. Come and talk to us when you go vegan. I'm like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see, guys. And I just just kept going down that path, possibly as you did, going, actually, this makes sense, you know, and this makes sense and this, oh, I guess I'm vegan now. Yes. That's what happens. And, you know, you have your last cheese pizza and, you know, kiss it goodbye. I don't even know. I don't even know when it happened. It just happened one day. It was like, yeah, I don't want to eat a chicken that's lived like that. I don't want that energy in my body. That's, I don't want to participate in that. Though I was listening to a podcast with Pete Holmes and Tim Minchin the other day, and Tim was talking about, because Pete's vegan, Pete's a vegan, he was talking about an individual act has absolutely no consequence on an overall system. And I, I sometimes think, you know, the way I describe it to people is they say, why are you vegan? I say, well, do you screw the little kind of squiggly light bulbs in at home? They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you do it? Because I want to do my part. So, well, mm-hmm. that's, that's me doing my part. It is. It is. Like you are one individual doing one little act, but there is millions of little individuals. There are millions of individuals doing that little act. And if every one of those million individuals listened to Peter Holmes or will listen to these, mm. there's lots of people that say that, you know, and they also say lots of other things like, well, you can't eat bread because of the, the, the mice being killed in the production of grain or whatever and all that sort of thing. And, and my general response to them is, well, I'm doing a lot more than you are, you whinging prick. But um, if a million people took that advice, there'd be a million less um, vegans and a million more people eating meat, causing pressure on blah, 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 using that much water. And, you, know, you look up the reasons. Well, so. yeah, because that, that's where I started. I started mm. on a resource thing. Yeah. I started on a, hang on. It takes a hundred times more land to create the same amount mm. of protein from an animal than a plant. Yeah. I like the Amazon rainforest. I don't want to participate in that. And people will say, well, you know how much land is taken up to use to make grow soybeans? Yeah, but it feeds cows. Vegans don't get those soybeans. Those soybeans feed cows. That's the other part is that half of the food on the world's surface mm-hmm. that people could eat mm-hmm. it gets fed to livestock which are then slaughtered. You imagine that funnel of all the available food for humans and for other living things to eat and it all goes down and water available resources goes down to a cow which then can only feed so many people, you know, or you know, to make your one burger, whatever. It's, yeah. It's that, I mean, that should be simple mathematics, not to mention the cruelty aspect and the, yeah. and the horrors that various animals uh, have to put up with. I think, and that's the thing about punk rock is that there is that fairness aspect, especially the punk rock that I grew up listening to. You want, you just want to do nice things for nice people. And it seems uh, incongruent because punk's about loudness and swearing and stuff. But, you know, I I remember reading that like um, the Sex Pistols, the most silly manufactured punk rock group and one of the original ones would go and like, you know, hang out um, in like hang, hang out at Christmas time with poor people and they would do stuff. I believe they would feed them vegetarian food. Like that's like that's back in the seventies. Like it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I I, um, I think that it's just always had that kind of do nice things vibe. Be nice to you know. You've got your community at the shows, you know, and and you know at hardcore shows in the last five ten years, you could go and go to a hardcore show, have your head ripped off by the riffs, and go and buy a cupcake. Go and buy a vegan cupcake. That's <laughs> great. There's Parkway Drive, you know, ripping your ripping your face off with their melting riffs. I have a cupcake. <laughs> that's what happens. There's vegan cupcakes. <laughs> vegan cupcakes at cake stalls. It doesn't, that's maybe more of a Melbourne thing. I oh, know I've had it in Canberra as well. But it's just, it's just, and it is that, <laughs> it is a really, it is a funny piece of incongruence, which is wonderful. And it's, you know, and you see, especially you see the straight edge hardcore scene, there's so many lo- lovely people in it that um, just 
have the biggest smiles on their faces and they're you know, hanging around and then they go and tear your face off with their riffs, which is, I think, a beautiful, um, you know, beautiful. Well, I think that's when I first, I think I, I first found out about uh, Straight Edge from that, the Minor Threat song, mm. but against the incongruence of the music and the way music sounded and the, the aggression of which mm. they were saying this message, I'm not going to sniff glue, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to do that. I, I just was like, oh. I was a bit put off by it, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Because it sounded quite angry. Well, that's right. No effects did a nice lounge version of it as well. I've got straight edge. But um so it's easy to listen to. But it's it's true. And that that was that hardcore music too. That was the uh, uh, Henry Rollins perfectly classifies it as that was the fuck you guys. They soon got absolved uh, absorbed by the fuck yeah guys who are your agnostic fronts and your your big beefcake hardcore dudes who were certainly not about that. They were I'm not sure whether they were, you know, into drugs or whatever, but they were definitely into, you know, just hard living and just, you know, street level stuff. It was the nerds got beaten out by the jocks kind of thing. Right. Which was, uh, there's some wonderful documentaries about the history of hardcore, which, yeah, which always have Henry Rollins in them because he's such a genius talking and stuff. But, um, yes, there you go. That's a, that's a nice, yeah, I, I, I don't think about punk rock that much these days. Because I'm 37 years old, and that's silly. But I do listen to it a lot still, in different different ways, and I play it still. And it's fun to think about those formative years and how how nice they were. There was lots of stupidity. There was excess. There was drinking. There was ridiculous late nights and really strange moments on tour and stuff. But everyone was just trying to be nice to each other. No one was trying to fuck anyone over, you know. Except for one time we had a merch guy who was a thief. But that's another story. Yeah. But, yeah, but there was like in the bands in the community, everyone was just trying to do nice things for one another and. And look out for each other, you know? And it's just a really, that's why we're all still alive because everyone was so nice. You know, everyone's nice. It's not like everyone trying to get whatever they can get for themselves. So, but for an outsider, um, for an outsider who only knows of your band, you're the band that sung a mean song about Russell Crowe. Mm. You're the band that called our Prime Minister a racist. Yes, in a horrible song. That album's horrible, but that's, that, that uh, statement stands. That's a pretty good song, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all right. And it's a secret track. You've got to be kept, you've got to be crafty to find that track. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we, yeah, because we, we... But used... what I'm saying is like, you're saying that, 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 that everything you've always done is to be nice to each other, yet mm. there's this massive voice of what you do and everything that you've done on radio and television has very much been a, like, whether it's um, the, the Howard government, the Abbott government, Kyle and Jackie O, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a, actually, no, thank you very much. We don't <laughs> like that. Yeah, because you've got to be nice to the nice people and you've got, and you've, you've got, to, and you've got to stand up for the nice people and you can't just let, um, you know, the, 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 you don't want to let the shit people win and the shit people will win because they – they cheat. They use mean tactics. They do terrible things. And I'm not suggesting that anyone in the, in, the, in your introduction, your question there, is necessarily like that. But you've got to do, you know, you, it's it's like, in fact, uh, you and Nakia Nakia Louie talked a lot about white privilege, and I've I've got every single form of privilege: white dude, middle class, straight, and punk rock communities are generally white, middle class, and straight. Generally, not not definitely not always, but um, so that I think is these people going, well, we've got this privilege. We, we get to do these things. We should probably try and make the world a little bit better and be nice to people and point out the people that aren't doing that and not just sing about chicks or, or whatever. Or if we're going to do that, use it as a way to talk about something else and actually talk about things which we think are important. The, the, the foremost one is alerting people to the fact that Russell Crowe's band is a fucking pile of shit. <laughs> 
it's our it's our our prime political statement. <laughs> no, but like, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's he's it. actually he's actually a lovely, lovely man. I don't doubt that and at all. I, I'm I'm grateful that I have had on time to time the opportunity to hang out with him, and he's. You, you're not going to find a more generous and kind and... And nothing in that song suggests And otherwise. giving guy. He's a very lovely, lovely human being. But you've heard his music. doesn't matter. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter. That is not... Music is subjective. That is absolutely fine. We're, we're dancing about architecture. It's ridiculous. There's no point. Uh, yeah, but, but also it was a pretty good song. And it's got a great guitar solo, that song. Recorded in Japan. There you with go. A, with a dude. We, we recorded a couple of songs in Japan just before we recorded that album, Sansusi. And uh, the dude, we were on, on tour with a band called Softball, this great Japanese band who are not around anymore, three wonderful women. And the guy in the studio couldn't speak English, so he would tell us to record by holding out a closed fist with the, uh, the, the, the top of the hand up. And when he wanted us to record, he would ro- ro- rotate his hand so his palm was facing up and open his fist out. And that meant record. So please record now. And when he wanted us to stop, he'd go back to the fist. And that's how we communicated, and it was beautiful. That's a glorious thing. Beautiful, it was great. But yeah. Yeah, it was. There's a point where you're uh, pointing out of things. Hey, this person's not doing their best to make mm-hmm. the world a better place for everybody. Um, but I keep, you know, when a guy live with an 11 year old girl now, mm-hmm. uh, her mum and I are together, and she's got a daughter, and mm-hmm. I end up having these conversations when the kid comes home and says, uh, "I hate Tony Abbott." And I said, well, why is that? Mm. And, you know, she says, and I said, well, you know, I can't say that I like him, mm. but you've got to remember people like that, they believe they're doing the right thing too. At the bottom of their hearts, they believe they're doing the best possible thing for everyone. Mm. And she kind of looked at me with long, slow blinks and then put on <laughs> Dance Mums. Uh, but guess- that thing is always been the thing that puzzles me is you we're talking here about i mean because i tr- i want to make the world a better place mm-hmm. for everybody mm-hmm. and i when i see that our particular australian government definitely the american government is simply it's just run by 10 people who mm-hmm. uh run corporations and they call all the shots and there's you know it's been proven yeah. uh that the u.s is a plutocracy and not a democracy um it makes it makes me go like well, well why <laughs> what what is this and and why would you be like that? Why would you be that kind of human? And how do you even communicate to a person who believes they're doing the right thing yeah. that actually that's not Breaking the right through thing? through ideology is – but that, then uh, I, I think that uh, you don't convince those people. You don't convince the ideologues, but you convince the people who are listening to the ideologues and going, oh, no, no, but he, yeah, that, I think – yeah, like you don't – yeah, you, 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 you hit – you don't hit the top. You work your way down until you find a little bit of a little bit of give, a little bit of give, and they're the people who are going. Well, no, I'm, I'm a liberal voter. I'm a liberal voter. I've always been. I vote for the coalition. You know, best for the best for the economy. I just wish they wouldn't do this. I wish, wish they I wish they'd do something about climate change. I wish they'd you know get a marriage equality. And you go, well, hey, there's other parties that aren't the coalition that also have you know can do this, can do this, and believe these things. And you work with them, um, and that. I think is a way to, you know, I guess, pull the ground out from under, underneath the ideologues because there's a lot of people with ideologies all over the world who don't have anyone listening to them. And just because these people are in power doesn't mean that they necessarily should have a bunch of people listening to them. I haven't really formed that sentence that well. But, uh, but, but like, I mean, we, we're not appealing to those people. When, I, when I'm 
uh, tweeting, which I do quite a lot, about the stupidity in all forms of power, not just coalition government, all the stupid things that have happened, um, you know, in, on both sides of the government and everything. I'm not tweeting to make Tony Abbott go, oh, Christ, Lindsay's just tweeted about me. I better rethink that position. I'm tweeting about the people who follow me or who follow the people who've retweeted me who then might go, might read that article, might read that viewpoint and just go, actually, that's an interesting viewpoint that I, that I might take on and, and include in the giant amount of information that makes up my opinions on stuff, and which, which is what I do all the time. Like, I, even though I don't have a job at the moment, which means I've got plenty of spare time to read every single article and viewpoint that I want to read, <laughs> that, that A, uh, reinforces my views, and B, will bend my views a little bit as well. Like, you, there's so many different aspects to to everything. But that you're willing to have your views bent, I think, mm. also sets you apart from a I lot of people. Oh, man, when I first went vegan, my gosh, I, I still would want to find these two girls that I yelled at after a show in Newcastle once where they came to get something signed by us and they had McDonald's in their hands. And I'm so sorry to them, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I saw McDonald's, started yelling at them, and then just thought, why? Well, no, I don't think I thought. I think I was told, why are you yelling at those two girls? They, didn't, they just went and got food after your gig and then went to get something signed. Why would you be such a prick to them? They're not the problem, you know, and, and from then on, and not from then on, but, you know, I, there's so many different ways to make your point. And it's with humour and it's with love and it's with showing people how, how well your life is that you live, you know. I mean, Christ, look at you, for goodness sake. I remember finding out you were vegan probably about the same time that you were on Australian Idol, I imagine, and just knowing that you have this giant profile and that just at certain times, you were just let out the information. <laughs> you weren't on Australian Idol going, you cannot win unless you go vegan. You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. You, you, no, you sing well, but you suck because I saw you eating some bacon backstage. <laughs> like just to see, to see the, the, just the way that, you know, that whole you catch more flies with honey instead of vinegar, some silly phrase like that. Oh, there's a uh, – I've heard the word attraction, not promotion. Mm. Absolutely. And that's the thing. I, I, there are people in my life who have gone vegan or vegetarian because of friends will run, because of me or whatever. And it's never been because I've yelled at them. Like it's because they see that we were a band full of vegetarians that were not the pious, you know, shy halud kind of, um, you know, uh, monks that a lot of, that some vegan bands are. Um, we were out there having a good time and just happened to also you know, show compassion to living things. And they would, you know, find that that, that is a, a doable thing to do. Marie Hardy, when I first started working on Triple J with Marie Hardy, one of Australia's greatest uh, writers and screenwriters, great brain, she, big food lover. Um, it was only when I, you know, when she saw how I lived as a vegetarian, she ended up going vegan, you know. It's just, there's just so many ways to do that that aren't, um, yeah, bashing people over the head with it. And I think the same stands for, political views as well as as well as diets and lifestyles oh i would agree in that it's it's much more of a look at and i i that's the trying that's the message i tried and send as well about about mental health as well is like mm. that bloke there on the telly that's what living with a mental yeah. uh health issue looks like it doesn't look like someone sitting in a corner reading a crayon it's, <laughs> it's that guy there um what do you think when people i mean obviously with mark latham blowing up all over the is place. Is he okay? That's the question. What do you feel? When, how do you feel when people are banging on about him, this nutcase on the telly? Like, like, I mean, I know he's saying some really stupid and horrible things, but 
does he have a support group? Does he have a network? Does he have well, a, like he's got a wife and kids? But see, I was really lucky in that when, because what I'm not saying this is what happened to Mark Latham, mm-hmm. all right, but I know what happened to me. I was lucky enough that I knew something wasn't mm-hmm. right. I knew something wasn't right. I would, I remember meditating that night or two nights later or three nights later, and when you're in the meditative moment, it, it, people think meditation is a still mind. It's not. Meditation is gently pushing the other thoughts away, gently pushing the other thoughts away. But as the thoughts were coming up, it would be um, flowers and then it would turn to the, like the final scene from Terminator 2 where everything is dying in a nuclear fire. So like, you're seeing that stuff. My brain was brain. filtering everything through a filter of cataclysm. Yeah. And I thought, this, is, this isn't right. This isn't like it was like the blue sky day, the beautiful mm-hmm. blue day we have here in Sydney today. Would, yeah. So I was like, yeah, something's there's a switch flicked in my brain that isn't right. That's a like yeah. I, I, so if he's in that position, I've, yeah. I've, I hope he I see a doctor. Absolutely. That or if anyone's in that position and yeah. you see the signs, I mean, the beautiful irony of that is this beautiful day in uh, at the very start of September is the sign of a glo- global catastrophe about to happen because it shouldn't be this sunny here in September. But that is, that's, I guess, a, a, a physical manifestation. How do you deal with I, I, that powerlessness around climate change? Um, by just, well, by, by doing things right myself, by doing the right thing myself. But, yeah, like when you think about the world, and I, I'm not having kids, that's not something, that's something and, I, and I'm not doing that just because I don't think the future is going to be good for people because I'm sure it will be. Although I did interview uh, Paul Gildea, who used to work for Greenpeace and has written many books on this various subjects and stuff. He's an Australian dude. Um, he's done wonderful things for the world. And he was like, the next 30 years, it's going to get very, very difficult. We've passed the point of no pain. We're in the point where it's going to hurt a lot now. If, even if we change everything in the world right now, it's going to hurt a lot to get us back to a sustainable planet because we we're living the, the life of three planets on one planet That's in, in terms of production and population and stuff. So it's easy to think, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And uh, one thing he also said is the third world isn't going to feel it that bad. The first world, as in, and, sorry, the developing world isn't going to feel it that bad. Rich people, really rich people aren't going to feel it because they'll have their pods and things. And, and, they're, and they're, It's the middle class that are going to feel it because we're the ones that live in the world that's going to be changing. So it's quite interesting to think about. that We will be feeling the, the brunt of, of how to cataclysmic climate change in the next few years but talking about it a lot talking about it and and not not resting while people think that it's okay to give climate change deniers equal footing that whole thing you know that balance has to be there's 99 if it's 99 of people and one percent disagrees then 99 of people you should get 99 of the televised of the television you should get 99 of the publicity you know that's the way it should be and I think some some publications are scared they're going to be published as biased, be painted as biased because some of the loudest voices are in that one percent. You know, your Murdoch press, buddy. Rupert Murdoch said tweeted the other day, uh, just had a look at the Barrier Reef. Looks as good as it did fifty years ago to me. Like, thank you, fucking marine biologist, Dr. Murdoch. You fucking idiot. What do you like? And he is a guy that is listened to and believed by so many people, and that's his that that's in his interest to say that sort of stuff. Um, so in my way, in agitating constantly about stuff, and, you know, I've only got like 50,000 something followers on Twitter, but I'm part of a movement on Twitter that do, that do tweet about this stuff a lot. 
<laughs> and Twitter is re- uh, remarkably strong, as we saw just after your last podcast with uh, Jim Matheson. Uh, the Border Force ridiculous Operation Fortitude was shut down and not, as people think, by anything else, by Twitter, by people saying, no, this is not good enough. This is ridiculous. You can't have people doing random visa ch- checks on the street. It was stopped and it was brilliant. And that is, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that can be achieved with this new version of people power, which happens on the internet, which I think is wonderful. And it, it, obviously it, it manifested into an actual protest in Melbourne, which is perfect that they chose Melbourne, one of the most politically active cities in Australia. Great. Um, so, yes. And, yeah, and then all the other things. You know, I don't buy new things, all, all off-shop clothing for me, except for this wonderful shirt that my friends in Army of Champions, the band, gave me, um, you know, which does – and, you know, like sustainable stuff, veganism, um, you know, just, just leave, try and leave an, a nicer where – you, where you walk, leave a nicer footprint, you know. Just don't leave the destruction. I mean, looking around this room is quite messy, but it's very sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> Even the casks. Cask, this is ridiculous. I'm unemployed. So obviously when I, when I do drink, and I don't drink that much at the moment, I drink cask wine. But in terms of the environment, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a much smaller environmental footprint, drinking cask wine. <laughs> and it's only about 11 bucks for two litres. Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> cask wine was a bit of my own. Oh, that was a story. It involved, <laughs> it involved a bushfire. Oh no! Well, not a bushfire. It was a fire we started. Anyway, oh, my, my burns healed eventually. Oh, that's horrible. That's yeah. Yeah. Fire played a, plays a big part in the sh- growing up in the Shire as well. Of course, surrounded by a national park. Yeah. And, uh, my brothers had five fire engines at uh, at a fire. They started once, and then that was like in ninety two or ninety three. And then when the big fires hit the Shire in ninety four, I think it was, my brothers were on the front line dousing. They were like, like at the edge of our at the edge of our yard with hoses. Saving people's houses. It was like they learned their lesson. It was brilliant. <laughs> so good. I'm happy to cut that out if you like. No, no, they were good. They're on the they're on the front line, they were they were they were fighting fires from right. the back of their house. It was wonderful. right. Um, <clears throat> well, despite all what the, the the slightly painful thing we just talked about, what's your mm. what's your hope? What's your hope moving forward? Um, for the world, or for, just in for general? for you, for us, for our culture, for our society in Australia. Uh, I think I I do think that we are in we're at a point i'm not sure what point of the curve we're in of australia heading in a sort of an annoying direction that's kind of less about being nice to people and more about uh being selfish i think that that's the thing and that's happened and and we're in the middle of it and we just have to ride it out because there are wonderful people becoming louder because of the power of you know that single voices can have in social media and all that sort of things i think that's positive um i think I think that the world seems to be making great leaps forward in environmental um, protection and with the exception of Australia, which is really embarrassing when, when every other country is divesting from coal and we're trying to rush over approvals for new coal mines in Australia. It seems very silly, but I think even for the same reason that people have said, doesn't matter what Australia does because we're only one country and there's much worse producers. For the same reason, it might actually mean that the stupid decisions we make about um, climate change now won't have that big an effect on the world. As the world, it'll probably cripple Australia economically when we, you know, uh, are so beholden to coal and suddenly no one wants to buy it. The price drops, it's like the steel price drop, no, iron ore price dropped recently, like all that sort of stuff. I'm not very good at, um, you know, assets and stuff. So I think that's a good thing. 
and I think that I think that we will eventually come out of the darkness because we have to. That's what happens. Um, I'm going to get married in October. Yes, you are. It's going to be very nice. Um, my fiance is freaking rad, and will be one of the people who will be making this world a better place. She works in she's she's a, a um, land heritage management, bush regeneration. Although she's currently today at sailing around buildings, um, <laughs> fixing waterproofing because she's also a freaking legend who abseils for a job as well as doing bush regeneration. So that's going to be wonderful. We're going to have a great time. I'm going to end up releasing a new album with Frenzel Rom once our drummer's arm gets better. He broke his arm. It's horrendous. And probably get back into radio at some point. One of those adult channels, those ABC adult channels. Nice. Of fun. And... And you're going to relocate to Australia permanently. Yeah. Which means every, so you, you mean you, that's that's every Bachelor series, you'll be right there. It'll be I'm fine. going to ride this puppy into the sunset. Yeah, of Lindsay. course, you got to, you got to stick with that. Yeah, man. And and I imagine, so now that you're moving back, that means you can do radio here as well. Truly. Top 30? No, what was, it, what was the one that you did? A bit past that. Bit past the grey in the beard is. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Oh, sm- oh, you got to get on Smooth. Got to try. You've Number to- one FM station in Sydney. Is it really? Yeah. I love Smooth FM so much. Cameron Daddo. Seriously. <laughs> me and I, I know. Now, Tom Ballard does some comedy about it that isn't, is, is sort of a bit derogatory towards it. He's like, he does the Cameron Daddo, pour yourself a big glass of wine. Now, sit, in, sit down in the bar, open your wrists. Oh, oh no, no, yeah, no, that's no. that, which is a horrible thing. But I love Smooth FM because it's music that I like to listen to because I'm quite a fan of yacht rock and, and Smooth. Oh, yeah, I love it. And I just love that. Go on, get the good biscuits out. You deserve it. <laughs> it's so good. Coming up next, Robert Palmer. It's just brilliant. It's ah, uh, it's because it's it, it it's it's in a way inconsequential, but it's beautiful. It's it's, it's in every meditative. Uber I've ever been in. Is it really? Yeah, it is. Um, so anyway, been great, man. Smooth if you're listening. Hey, Peter Clay. Lindsay wants a job. <laughs> um, thanks for having me, man. No worries. Thanks for coming to my house. Unreal. I'm going to take your photo. Okay. Yeah, please do. Cool. That was Lindsay McDougal. You can follow him on Twitter at Lindsay McDougal, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L. You can subscribe to this show if you want to get it in your uh, phone every week without even doing anything. You can just find us um, in the podcast app of your choice. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You know where I am. You can find me and send me an email. I write back to pretty much everybody. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can get me. So it's nearly midnight. I've got to get to bed because there's a pancake breakfast in the morning. Apparently the the Dutchies enjoy a pancake breakfast. And um, yeah, I'm grateful once again that I got to make a show. I'm grateful for you listening. I'm grateful for the bed I'm about to get into. I'm grateful for a lot of things. Especially you. Yeah. Because you're awesome. All right. I'll talk to you next week. I love you. Thanks so much for listening. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.